Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Katherine Gerbner. Welcome, Dr. Gerbner. Thank you so much for having me. Um, thank you for uh, accepting our request. I really appreciate it. I saw your book scrolling through Facebook and some of my friends were posting about it and i was like oh that's interesting uh so uh i definitely we definitely want to talk about your book today uh, but before we get into that just tell the audience just a little bit about yourself so uh my name is katherine gerbner i am a assistant professor of history at the university of minnesota um, and i teach and study about the history of slavery and its relationship to religion and specifically christianity that's that's awesome. And uh, what what made you uh, want to write a book on the topic of Christian slavery? That's a great question. And, you know, I certainly didn't set out to write a book on Christian slavery. Actually, I started my research trying to write about anti-slavery, Quaker anti-slavery. Um, and I was looking at the first anti-slavery protest ever written in the Americas. And that was, you know, probably 15 years ago that I was doing that. But what I realized when I started to look more into that uh, sort of Quaker anti-slavery movement was that at that time, most Quakers were actually slave owners. And that confused me, um, you know, because usually we hear about Quakers as being abolitionists, but I found a very different story in the 17th century. And so... I sort of started to follow that thread and started to look at uh, Christian missions to enslaved peoples um, and how, I mean, most missionaries also, you know, were not against slavery. Many of them had slaves. And so I started to think more about that. And eventually I became really interested also in the question of why, um, when and why enslaved people uh, chose to convert to Christianity. And I saw a very different picture in sort of the 17th and 18th centuries, um, where it was very difficult for enslaved people to gain access to Christian baptism. 
And so I thought this was a story that I really hadn't seen before. You know, most people, when they think about Christianity and slavery, we think about the antebellum period and um, the role that Christianity played in pro-slavery theology. But here I, I saw something completely different. So instead of writing about anti-slavery, I ended up writing this book called Christian Slavery. So. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad you did. Uh, what was the anti-conversion sentiment that existed throughout the Protestant regions? So uh, most Protestant slave owners in the early colonial period did not want their slaves to convert to Christianity. They thought of Christianity as a religion that was for free people, and they worried that a baptized slave would then demand freedom. So as a result, they excluded the vast majority of enslaved people from Protestant churches. Um, and I can give you a quick example of this. So in the 1640s, uh, there was an English man named Richard Ligon who traveled to Barbados and there he met an enslaved man who told him that he wanted to become a Christian, uh, but that he wasn't allowed to. Richard Ligon, who was sort of new to uh, slave societies, then went to this man's owner and uh, and said, you know, this man wants to become a Christian. And that uh, slave owner said, well, Christians cannot become slaves. Ligon corrected him and said that he didn't want to make a Christian a slave, he wanted to make a slave a Christian. To which the man then replied that the laws of England did not allow that and that his fellow planters would curse him if he allowed such a, allowed such a thing to happen. So what we see here is a variety of reasons for this anti-conversion sentiment, as I call it. So first is the idea that Protestantism was equated with freedom. Um, second is this idea that the English slave laws didn't allow slaves to become Christian. Um, but finally, there is this, sort of this underlying fear that Christian slaves would rebel. Um, and in fact, in one of the first letters that I've found about this subject, I, Protestant slave owners are uh, writing that Christian slaves would, quote, rebel and cut our throats. So there is this real fear about what would happen if um, enslaved people were allowed to be baptized. Mm -hmm. That's that's very, very interesting. Um, when we talk about, I know you talked in your book about uh, Protestant supremacy. What What is uh, Protestant supremacy? Right. Yes, this is a term that I... I use to describe this uh, anti-conversion sentiment, but it's more than that. Uh, so Protestant supremacy, I really see as the forerunner to white supremacy. So white supremacy uses race to create inequality um, and Protestant supremacy uses religion. So um, we can see this in the earliest slave laws in the English colonies. Colonists didn't call themselves white. Um, instead, they called themselves Christian. So the concept of whiteness didn't exist yet. Um, and what Protestant supremacy did was it utilized this anti-conversion sentiment to make uh, religion a cornerstone of slave law. So what this shows is that religious difference, you know, the fact that masters were Christians and slaves were, quote, heathens, this was this implicit justification for slavery. Christians couldn't be slaves and slaves had to be heathen. Um, and this changed over time as the concept of whiteness was created. So eventually race becomes the new way to justify slavery rather than religion. But even after that happens, anti-conversion sentiment sort of persists for a long time after the codification of racial slavery. Mm -hmm. 
Man, that's very, very helpful. How did baptism of slaves challenge the institution of slavery? And I know you spoke to this a little bit about when you talked about conversion um, in my first question, but um, can you go a little bit more into how baptism affected that? Yes, absolutely. So the baptism of slaves uh, directly challenged this ideology of Protestant supremacy. So it was an extremely threatening development. um, And we can see this from the reaction to Christian missions and to the enslaved converts, um, which was intense and violent. So missionaries and black converts to the Moravian church, for example, uh, they were regularly beaten and attacked by white colonists. Um, Quakers were fined for allowing enslaved people to meet for worship. And there are a few different reasons that this was so threatening. So uh, first is sort of, as I was mentioning before, if slaves became Christian, then this was challenging really the justification for slavery, which was religious difference. Um, But second, in some cases, missionaries taught enslaved people how to read the Bible and to write. And uh, this was extremely unpopular among slave owners um, because it was really a source of power. Um, And then third, when enslaved Christians met for worship, white colonists, so they saw a, you know, a group of black people and they were always fearful of slave rebellion. So you can see that Christian baptism, it undermined slavery. Slave owners feared that Christian slavery and um, they, that Christian slaves wouldn't accept their their role as slaves any longer and would then become more rebellious. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's interesting because it's it is a um, one of the reasons here at the Jude Three Project that um, we uh, one of the questions that we get is uh, why would black people uh, like you you mentioned earlier. Um, even be involved in Christianity. And it's interesting that at first, uh, the white slave owners didn't want African-American slaves to to uh, be a part of Christianity. That's, that's very interesting because of what uh, they believe would come from it. Yeah. Um, for those slaves who did convert, uh, the Christian slaves in the Atlantic world, what did their life look like? Yeah, I mean, it's an understatement to say that life was hard, right? Um, You know, in many cases, Christian slaves were working six to seven days uh, a week, sometimes during the night. Um, And then they were trekking miles to go to worship meetings because, you know, there weren't very many. Um, Often you had to walk for an hour, two hours to get to um, the congregation. And I think this shows how important these congregations were to the enslaved people who converted. So... Some uh, Christian slaves would then travel on their own as much as possible so that they could preach to others. So uh, in the island of St. Thomas, for example, um, there's a free black woman named Rebecca who was largely responsible for spreading um, Christianity, in this case, Moravian Christianity. Um, and there's a great book about her uh, by John Sensbach, but she, she traveled widely and was, uh, eventually went to Europe and then Africa. So what you can see here is just uh, how difficult i mean life was extremely difficult but you know there was also sort of an extreme commitment to the the christian congregations mm-hmm. and yeah that's i'm glad you mentioned uh john's book we had him on the podcast okay. a few months ago uh to talk about rebecca Proton and the work she did um in the caribbean so uh that's yeah he he's yeah his work is a is amazing um 
why do why in your research uh these what made christianity attractive to slaves during the great awakening so i think there were a number of different attractive features of christianity and um you know it's hard to say completely because you can't uh, we don't have that many diaries written by uh enslaved christians but first i would say is community was extremely significant uh christian congregations formed a really important locus of support and kinship for enslaved people. Um, and second though, I would, I would add literacy, which isn't usually talked about in this period, but I found, um, you know, so I mentioned before, some missionaries would teach enslaved people how to read the Bible and to write. And this was so popular. Uh, in the early missionary diaries that I've read, I mean, missionaries were being overrun with requests for both baptism and reading lessons. Um, so I think that that was a very central aspect of uh, Christianity in this period and was very attractive to people. Um, but finally, I don't think we can ignore theology either. Uh, the Moravians, for example, um, they emphasize suffer like the suffering of Jesus and their missions, the you know the blood and wounds of Christ is what they called it. I think we can see why this might hold a lot of meaning for enslaved people. Um, but as Christian slaves began to read the Bible for their own, they also uh, emphasized different aspects of Christian theology that were sometimes separate from those of white missionaries. But I, I think we can see sort of a lot of different elements to why Christianity would, would be attractive, you know, community, literacy, and then lead the beliefs themselves. Mm -hmm. Awesome. What were the imperial politics of slave, slave conversion? So the... The imperial politics of slave conversion is, this is really about escaped slaves who wanted to become Christian. So um, as I've sort of explained, the ideology of Protestant supremacy meant that slaves in British colonies were mostly not able to convert to Christianity. So some enslaved people chose to escape to Catholic colonies where they were baptized. Um, so in many cases, these escaped slaves who are now Catholic argued that they shouldn't be sent back to the British colonies because they wouldn't be able to practice their religion. And so in some cases, we actually see the French and Spanish governments protecting them, though this isn't really for altruistic reasons, right? But it's still significant. Um, so a good example of this is South Carolina and Florida. Um, Florida was a Spanish colony and enslaved Africans in South Carolina would flee their enslavement to escape to Florida where they were promised Catholic baptism and freedom. Um, and so I think that this shows that the conversion of slaves to Christianity, it, I mean, it was important for a lot of reasons, but it actually had a huge international impact. I've seen, you know, British colonial governors complaining about this, you know, saying that their slaves are, you know, especially on an island like St. Christopher, which is half French and half English, uh, enslaved people in the English part would escape to the French part and that get baptized in the Catholic church and then argues sort of that they should not be sent back to the British colony. So it was extremely significant on a international level. Mm -hmm. um, could you explain for us pro-slavery theology and its effects on black Christianity? Yes. Um, so I really see black Christianity um, as forged in opposition to pro-slavery theology. Um, pro-slavery theology, 
I, I argue that it was really created by white missionaries who are trying to combat Protestant supremacy. So, you know, they're doing their best to sort of support the missions and support the conversion of uh, uh, enslaved people to Christianity. Well, what they end up doing is in order to convince slave owners to allow enslaved people to convert, they argue that Christian slaves would be obedient and docile, and they drew on arguments about uh, slavery in the Bible to do so. But as we've seen, um, you know, I don't think Black Christianity was obedient or docile. Uh, there was a lot of opposition to slave baptism, and um, enslaved Christians also created their own interpretations of scripture. Um, but pro-slavery theology still has had a, a very long-lasting and I would say very negative legacy um, because it's often, you know, missionaries are the one who, they're the ones who wrote things down for the most part. And so this is the message that's come through to us about, you know, Christianity and slavery. It makes Christianity seem like the white man's religion, and it creates this myth that slaves converted to appease their masters. But in reality, um, and especially in this early colonial period, becoming a Christian was an extremely difficult path for enslaved people. Um, and so I think it's extremely important to emphasize this and to remember what a struggle it was for slaves in this early uh, colonial period to become Christians. Mm -hmm. That's very insightful uh, because, you know, we don't think of the work. Uh, I know I didn't for a long time that it that it took for a Christian in that period, a, a black person, a black slave in that period to become a Christian, that it wasn't something that was forced. And in many cases, it was something that was kind of, hey, shunned in a sense. Um, but still they pressed on because they really had to believe in the message at some level, not the level in which <laughs> their white slave owners believe, but in a, in a different level. What, what other things would you want um, people to know about your book or research that you think would be helpful uh, for our audience? So I think, um, you know, we've, we've really only uh, started to discover some of the, the records that Black Christians have left. Um, and a lot of the reason for this is because, uh, and John Sensbach's work has, has has done a lot of really important work in this regard. But these, the Moravian missions that um, I mentioned, John also talks about them in his book. You know, these are, there are thousands and thousands of pages written not just by missionaries, but some, but also some things by Black Christians. So the earliest example we have of sort of uh, enslaved Black Christians writing about their experiences, but uh, they're written in German in a really hard script to read. And so I think that there's, um, we're just sort of, people are just starting to use them and write about them, but there's so much opportunity and excitement about what they could reveal about uh, sort of the experience of being a, an enslaved or free black Christian in the 18th century. Um, so that's something I'm really excited about. And it's something I would encourage other people to sort of look into. Um, and, you know, it's the one of the, the new research projects that I'm working about is trying to center these black Christians and, uh, you know, thinking about the theological discussions that they were having 
uh, with missionaries, with um, with other enslaved and free Black converts. I just think there's a whole world there that we do not yet uh, see or understand that um, will offer us a, an exciting window into this history. Mm -hmm. Can you share, uh, I'm interested to know what kinds of, do you have an example of a conversation that was happening between uh, black slaves and their slave owners around theology? Um, so less so around to their slave owners, but more to missionaries. Um, because, you know, the, the records that I read are mostly written by, by missionaries rather than um, the slave owners. Uh, but yeah, for example, there's um, a man in St. Thomas named Andreas, uh, and his baptized name was Emmanuel. And I have sort of a record of him in a, a, a worship meeting where they're talking about turning the other cheek and what it, and the missionaries are trying to argue that, uh, okay, turning the other cheek means that you need to sub basically submit to abuse without complaining. And uh, Andreas sort of speaks up at this point and he says, you know, I actually don't agree. Like, I'm not going to just, you know, sit back and be abused and not complain about it. And they, and he engages in this debate with the, with the missionary about, you know, what this scriptural passage means. Um, and in the end, you know, they, they sort of come to uh, Emmanuel, or Andreas or Emmanuel says, all right, you know what? I'll just, you can say what you're going to say. What I'm going to do is I'm going to learn how to read and read the Bible and just sort of avoid all of these conflicts. And so, you know, so you see sort of these scriptural debates happening um, and you can see sort of the, the white missionaries with this sort of, uh, this interpretation of turning the other cheek that, that has elements of sort of pro-slavery theology in it. And then you can see, um, you know, Andreas Emmanuel then saying, you can, you can believe that I'm going to do my own thing and sort of, you know, uh, sort of create my own uh, path within, within scripture and within uh, Christian theology. So that's one example. I mean, there are other, there are other examples I've heard of um, that I've read about, you know, from Jamaica in the 1750s, uh, uh, an enslaved man named uh, Matthew sort of trying to sort of ask exactly about the Trinity, you know, what, what does it, like, what, what is the relationship between, you know, the Father, the Son, Holy Ghost, etc. I just really specific stuff about, uh, about that. Oh, and then another really interesting debate that happens frequently is about when baptism could occur. So uh, Matthew, the same, the same man uh, I was just talking about, he really wants to be baptized, but the uh, Moravian missionaries won't allow him to be baptized. And what he does is he goes through the Bible and he says, well, what about Philip, you know, the, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian? And he reenacts sort of this story where he says, well, the, the, the Ethiopian requested baptism and he was baptized. So I'm going to do the same thing. Why doesn't, why shouldn't I be baptized? And the missionary sort of doesn't really have a great answer for him. But uh, again, you can see that sort of these core aspects of Christian theology, you know, when should somebody be baptized? What is the Trinity? How should we interpret something like turning the other cheek? These are, uh, these are live these are sort of alive conversations and debates between these black Christians and these white missionaries. 
And I think there's, you know, these are just a few of the examples that I've found so far in my research. That's amazing because those are really apologetic uh, questions, especially when we talk about the Trinity and um, and uh, you know what does it mean to interpret portions of scripture. I think that's really helpful to know that they were wrestling with this uh, because one of the false narratives is kind of like slaves weren't thinking and they were dumb and they were just taking this, but no, they're critically thinking through uh, what they're receiving. And they're like, uh, no, some of this doesn't sound right. And I'm gonna reject the portions that aren't right. And even taking, like you, like you said, taking their missionaries and saying, hey, what about this scripture? It seems to contradict what you're saying. Um, when you were talking about the changing of the name when baptism, what's, was that like a regular occurrence where they, they would change the name when they were baptized? Yes, for the Moravian church, absolutely. They, pretty much everyone got a new name. Was it just the slaves or just period, everyone? Um, you know, that is a really good question. I'm actually not, you know, I'm trying to think of like the, the white missionaries, whether they got new names. Some of them did have multiple names, um, but I'm actually gonna have to go look because uh, you know, all of the, the baptism records I've looked at, they're from um, the slave colonies. And so everyone being baptized is an enslaved or free black person and everyone is given a new name. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't looked at records from say Europe where there are, uh, Europeans who are being baptized. And I'm not sure whether, I don't think that they were given new names, but that's a really fascinating observation. <laughs> I only thought of that because uh, one of the big, uh, one of the most popular African-American films is Roots. And they mm -hmm. talk about Toby and Kutakinte right. and the, the name change mm -hmm. uh, that slave owners would give them. And I was wondering were missionaries doing right. the same thing? Um, to these, to these uh, African slaves when they would, when they would become baptized. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. No, I had not put it in that context, but that's a really. I'm gonna have to think up, think a little bit more about that and see whether that was a practice elsewhere in the Moravian Global Mission. Mm -hmm. Tell tell our audience how they could get your book. Um, I know we just scratched the surface uh, <laughs> of your book, uh, but I think it's a, a very helpful resource especially to the work we do at G3. And I know that uh, once this is out, people will, will be grabbing a copy because uh, I think it's helpful what you share. Um, how can people get your book? Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. It's, it, it was actually just published last week. Um, I have a copy here uh, and you can see on the cover, this is actually Andreas Emanuel, the man I was just talking about. Um, so this is a, a Moravian painting. I, so it was published by Penn Press. So there's also, you can buy it from Penn Press as well, uh, but it's probably Amazon is easy. And then, um, or you could call a, a local bookstore or a library and request that they, they purchase one. Um, but uh, I also wanted to mention that I provide a little bit of a summary of the book and also uh, some examples of other research that I'm working on, um, especially sort of the black theology in the, in the Caribbean on my website, which is katherinegerdner.com. That's awesome, Catherine. And um, we're gonna be purchasing a copy of the book and running the promotion to give away to one of the listeners um, for uh, 
to help just promote the work you're doing because we we think the book is important um, and also to bless someone with a copy. Thank so thank you for all that you do. Are you on social media for uh, those to connect? Yes, I'm on Twitter at KT Gerbs, so K-T-G-E-R-B-S. Um, and I am also on Facebook as Katherine Gerbner. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jude3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jude3Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.